Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello, this is Book Shambles. I am Trent, the producer, and the, that sounded uh, more aggressive than I meant it to be. Sorry, but I haven't got time this week to uh, go back and re-record it. So that's what we're stuck with. This week's guest is Colin Stewart, astronomer and astronomy author, which is an excellent segue into reminding you about the Norwich Science Festival. We're going to be there with uh, a number of astronomy-themed shows this year. On Friday the 25th of October, we'll be doing a performance of Signals with Footprint Theatre, the comedy play about uh, searching for aliens, and that will be followed by a talk by Professor Lucy Green, who you know from Cosmic Shambles and Sky at Night and Stargazing Live and all that jazz. Oh, and that's a perfect segue that I didn't even... uh, didn't even manufacture ahead of time the following night on saturday the 26th we'll be doing universe of music and the crowd and the cosmos so a talk by professor chris lintot followed by universe of music when he'll be joined by steve pretty to uh find where jazz and astronomy intersect so go to cosmicshambles.com or the norwich science festival website for tickets for those CosmicShambles.com is also where you'll find links to our Patreon to support everything we do at Book Shambles and Cosmic Shambles and get extended episodes and such. Find out about our other live events. Coming up, Robin's Chaos of Delight, Two and Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, Compendium of Reason and everything else. And while you're there, don't forget to check out all the latest blogs and documentaries and such things. Now, here is uh, this week's episode with Robin and our guest co-host back this week is Natalie Haynes chatting with Colin Stewart. Four, three. Oh, it's really speeding up now. I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. And uh, before we start, just say a quick thing, which is uh, do go to CosmicShambles.com to find out how uh, you can listen to loads of different episodes and see lots of kind of interviews with people who've both been on Book Shambles and other things. And also go there to find out about my tour date. There we are. Uh, <laughs> I'm coming to uh, Southport. Well, I might have actually been there by the time this goes out. And various uh, other places, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Otley, Penzance, Exeter. Penzance, Shoreham, Exeter. Look at a map and enjoy that particular triangle that I've made of travel. Uh, I am joined today by Natalie Haynes. Hello. Wincing um, at your tour schedule. Because last year I had to do, I think I'm right to say it was Cornwall, Dumfriesshire, Devon. And yeah. I was like, oh, no. Do me a favour. Who? Bu- oh, I did. Um, and before we get started with with uh, our guest, I'll say our guest, by the way, is Colin Stewart. We're going to be talking about astronomy. We're going to talk about the sun. We're going to talk about astronauts and uh, other such things. We'll talk about hydrogen turning into helium, if you want. Um, but before that, I just want to ask you, Natalie Haynes, because you are uh, currently reading... How many novels are you a, bo- a booker judge at the moment? How I'm many- not a booker judge. I Honestly, I'm not. Oh, you're I not a booker judge. You I just have to, you just have to... Oh, I, I am you just were- um, interviewing the shortlisted authors um, on the, at the Southbank Centre 
the night before the prize was awarded. So that's the oh, 13th that's of October. Fine. So it's only six books. The year right. I judged it, 151 books. Yeah, so I six is fine. Didn't understand that at all. Six is fine. Um, are we just getting coffee now, by the way? Um, just so you know, if, if anyone thinks, what's the background coffee sound? You are not going insane. Well, you might also be going insane, but that's a separate issue to From listening to this podcast. Yeah. Actually, it might not be entirely separate issue to this podcast. You might have they chosen could be connected. It. Yeah, you might have chosen this as a sanity blanket. If so, it was a very poor decision. Um, but yeah, it was just, and, and then you had these lovely moments which reminded me of um, uh, Ray Bradbury, um, where you have that Fahrenheit 451, where you, you remember where in, in the movie of that, Truffaut, there's lots of people just walking through the woods and all of them have memorised the book. Would you like to know a bonus Ray Bradbury fact? Yes. And it, it's genuinely difficult as to say. As long as it doesn't this. ruin no, it, it for me. It, it, it only reveals something which I have managed to keep relatively quiet up to this point, which is that, as you know, I think, um, I am one of the people who hosts The Seventh Dimension on BBC Radio 4 Extra. Uh, which is the sci-fi and horror strand and it is one of the very few linguistic failures of my existence that I, I remember I am fluent in you know English and Latin and ancient Greek several dialects so it is genuinely painful to me to have to tell you that I find it incredibly hard to the point where I have to give it a run-up to say the name Ray Bradbury and I have to properly move my head in the right place because I just can't say it I trip over it every single time you can ask my lovely producer Moy McGowan whenever we have Ray Bradbury programs. I have to stop and do them like that. That's interesting. It's yeah, a the, huge. The... I don't know why I can't do it. I can do much harder names, but I cannot do his. I can say the names of Aristophanes plays, no problem at all. Ecclesia Zeusai, Thesmophoria Zeusai. Probably his I just name's can't just too do it. modern for you. It's 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 it, it's it's a name. The R's yeah. in the wrong place for me. Yeah. I don't. I can't do it. And I used to try and say it properly, which I think is. You can say it. Say it. Ray Bradbury. Yeah, I and I have to just say it as two syllables. I have to just cut it right. That second chunk of his name down as though it were cheese um colin you uh you firstly you have a, a star named after you don't you no an asteroid can i just tell you by the way everyone who's listening we're doing this as a pickup because the mic went wrong and rather than me appear to know because I, I first of all did this saying you've got a star named after you and he corrected me and i thought now don't pretend that i knew it all along yeah, just make it wrong again so ignorance. just so you know i faked my <laughs> ignorance not merely do i do universal ignorance authentically if i accidentally discover something and correct myself i will continue with the previous ignorance so that you think oh good there's a through line to the narrative of You're this fool yeah <laughs> So you have you have an astro- asteroid named after you. How does that happen? So there are kind of two ways. Either they name them after... Well, if you discover the asteroid, you get to name it whatever you want. That's the first thing, within, within some rules. Um, but if you leave what it open... What are the rules? Stop. Wait, what are the rules that you can't name it what? No swear words. Okay. No pets, I think, is a rule. <laughs> I was about to say, what, no pets as a joke, and yet it turns out actually... Yeah, I think, I think I'm pretty sure that's a rule. Um, and it has to be... they rather you have one word than okay. a string of words. So you, if you discover it, you get to name what you want. Um, but if you leave it to lapse, I think it's for 10 years, then the International Astronomical Union get to name it uh, whatever they want. Um, and it's either after famous people. So there's an Elvis Presley, there's a Freddie Mercury, there's a uh, Brian May, you know, there's all those sort of things. But uh, That's only polite, isn't it, given the whole physics yeah. element of Did things. Brian May uh, discover that, though? No. So in some ways that's terrible. Because if Brian May finds one, he goes, I can't bloody call mine. I've got to call mine Brian May 2, which is... You can name it after Anita Dobson. Yeah, I don't think it's one of those. There you go, you see? 
I've solved um, the problem. Or they name them after people who have done stuff in, in, in astronomy. So it was kind of a thank you for, um, I go out and do loads of school stuff and write books and try and get people excited about space. So it was a kind of... I do that about classics and nobody's named an asteroid after me. So Well, no, yeah. you'll get... So, no, it will be within your... No one's named your, a ruin after exactly, me. Exactly. <laughs> someone will find something old and broken and they'll name it after you. <laughs> That's the difference of what you get involved in, or you I'll see. Or simply become that <laughs> yeah. and it will all be fine. Just below this car park in St Albans... There's an old broken thing that they've concreted over, yeah. and we call it Natalie Haynes. <laughs> it is my well, the good news is there are, there are about a quarter of a million that haven't been named yet. Well, so there's mm-hmm. scope. Taps watch. <laughs> well, that is, we will start off before we talk about your new book, which is about about, about the sun, which is weirdly enough I was trying to write about today because something that I find. Well, let's start off. Um, you, how when you go into a school. And it's, you know, it's one of the big things, obviously, it's something that I've been involved with as well, that that bit of working out how and what details, what stories, what images draw people in, people who may think they have no interest in, you know, the sky above them. When you go into a school, what, especially, should we start off, because I presume it's going to change with ages as well. So if you're going into a primary school and you're talking to eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, what will grab their imagination? So you've got to make it about them, I think. The trouble with space is it can be quite abstract and people see it as some distant place that is completely irrelevant. So um, one of my primary school talks is about why space matters to me. You know, all the ways that as an eight-year-old, you're affected by space every day of your life without you noticing. Um, so my talks are always, there's no words, there's no graphs, there's just, just video and big images. Um, no words is brilliant. That really saves you a lot of time, doesn't it? Well, yeah. You just sat there clicking. Well, I don't want them to read it. I want them to hear it. And oh, I see. You, you say well, some I say words. words. No, ah, right, no right, right. written words. Um, but just to get them to think differently, like for an eight, eight-year-old, when they realise that a birthday, you sort of drill down into what a birthday is, that actually it's a celebration of, of one more lap of the sun and that every time they blow up their candles, they've been around the sun one time since they last did that. It's that sort of familiarity but they never think about it. They never think about what a birthday actually means. They just think cakes, presents, candles. And just to Those see, are the main things, they are the main to be things. fair. But just to see that penny drop in their faces when they think, they're thinking about it and then they realise that, oh, hang on, a birthday is a, sp- is a space word. Mm. That's, that's the magic. And so, I mean, I've got, there was a lovely question when we, I've, I've just been on tour with Brian Cox and, and on, I think it was on the final tour in Birmingham, where, uh, final tour date, where um, someone, a, a nine-year-old asked, uh, if I lived on the uh, um, outward-facing part of the moon, outward-facing towards the earth part of the moon, so looking towards the, the, the earth, would there be a dark side of the earth? You know, and that that you can see how that question would come up. That's a lovely the fact that a nine year old has thought through all of those things. The side of the moon, I can never see that side of the moon. Hang on a minute, what if I'm on the moon? What if I'm looking down? How does that work? And I think, um, um, and uh, I can't remember exactly because because you will be there is no dark side of of the Earth. Is the from that perspective? No, because the the Earth's not locked to the moon in the same way the moon's mm. locked to the Earth. But there was an interesting bit because as Brian then explained it, there was some... I'm trying to remember which bit he started to get confused as to exactly what you might miss out on, though. Is there anything... I like it when he's confused. It's my favourite moments. I mean, oxygen. Can I just throw that into the mix? <laughs> You'd miss out on oxygen. There you would be. Gravity. Yeah, no, you might no, miss gravity. Not going through the, all of the things that you oh, might okay. miss. You might miss your family. Well, you might be happy because it's <laughs> Christmas and you always have arguments. Yeah, there's a lot of other issues there. But is there anything... So would we merely see... So you, 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 as, as, as you stand on the moon, 
you will see uh, full rotation of the Earth? And how will that change from your perspective of what you see as uh, in, in terms of the ellipse and things like that? I am shocking. Uh, uh, thinking about things in three dimensions and trying to picture things and vantage points. and I always um, figure you guys have that covered because that's what makes me come unstuck in this kind of thing is that my brain just won't... It's like I, can't, I can kind of get so far and then you go, no, hang on, now, now if I need to... I've just about imagined all the three-dimensional things, but now if you ask me to change my point of perspective, I can't, I can't do it. I can't it. do it. OK, that's it, reassuring, that's interesting. Though. So you, you're seeing it at two... For, for you... Is the, the night sky is almost is it a two dimensional almost like the like the wall map we might have had from a Sky at Night magazine or something it's like more that? Kind of or flipping your perspective, you know those IQ tests where they say here's a shape, and then which of these shapes is that shape seen from a different perspective? Yeah, I can work it out, but I have to sit there and I guess yeah, it's a bit like too. you were very bribery, right? I have yeah. to sit there and physically don't just casually say it like <laughs> anyone can say it. Damn yeah. it! No, I Ray Bradbury. <laughs> you're probably not the only person who has problems with Ray it's Bradbury. So hard. I, I used to have a problem with curiosity, the rover curiosity, and even now I have to say it. Yeah, no, like I you like say Ray you Bradbury, to move your curiosity. Head to make it ha- yes, because no, I just kept stumbling over it. Yeah. yeah, so I think we all have those words. Can I just check? Do. How are you with Isaac Asimov? I'm fine with Isaac Asimov. Oh, I suppose that it does sound like a kind of older name, doesn't it? It's the kind of name that might be in some of those old plays. Yeah, I like... don't have a problem with the Russians. I have oh, a problem okay. with the Ray Bradburys of the world. Mm. Oh, I think you're getting so better at it, though. So, hello, I'm Professor Higgins. The so that's so the flipping of the perspective. So when you're looking at the night sky, or you're or not or imagining, let's say it's not things that we we uh, yeah they might be, but you're you're thinking of a section of it. Can you in any way explain what the process in your brain is as you are journeying around, say, a constellation? I guess it, it does seem flat and two dimensional to all of us. It's only when you know the only way to make it three dimensional in your head is to know the distances. So there's a, a sort of famous triangle called the summer triangle, right? Astronomers are really uh, they like to keep things simple where possible, right? So three stars in the summer sky, summer triangle. Um, they all look about the same brightness, except one of them is 250,000 times brighter than the other two. It's just stupidly far away. So when you start to think about those things, you can realise that these are just flat, two-dimensional things. But if I if I wanted to sort of put my head in the sky and turn around and look from a different vantage point, I would struggle. I have that problem this morning when I was reading just about relativity and, you know, those kind of illustrations of if you're standing absolutely still and there's two bolts of lightning, which to someone who is motionless appear to be striking at the same time, but if I'm moving at half the speed of light there. And then at that point, I I go flat and I can't get that. I mean, that to me, that seems to be one of the biggest problems in a lot of areas of, 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 of both, say, you know, particle physics in terms of uh, the, the magnitude of, of the universe, in terms of trying in some ways to, to you know, the, the, the Milky Way is what, just, you know, 200. How many? What's the latest estimation? It's just gone up. So for years it was 100,000. What? What's just happened? They've re-estimated the, the diameter of the Milky Way. So uh, I, I've been telling people for 10 years it's 100,000 light years wide. Yeah. Um, and now... Um, it's they're saying maybe one hundred seventy thousand, maybe even two hundred thousand light years. Okay, so when you say they've re-estimated, you mean they've doubled, doubled it? Yeah. See, you're a very wow. unreliable bunch, scientists. Well, the way I was talking about we the... cracked linear B, we were very calm about it, and it was a small change. That's what I can cope with. Well, I guess imagine this: imagine that you're in a forest. All right. And then you can never leave the forest because it's just ridiculously big. Okay, I'm actually fine with that. Yeah, but then try and tell me how how big the forest is. And you might spend 10 years looking at the forest and going, well, I think it's this big. And all of a sudden you, you, you get... But I obviously wouldn't do that. I would sit on a tree trunk and read a lovely book. There's no books there. 
I would sit on a tree trunk and imagine a lovely You're having book. an awful time. You wish you were starving from oxygen on the moon. I wish I'd, I wish I'd taken Robin up on that bloody dark side of the moon, dark side of the earth experimental trip. <laughs> and then finally I'd be dead. So that's the issue. You have, you have a good guess, but as you get better. I mean, we just had a new telescope uh, last couple of years called Gaia. Big European t- telescope. Which I imagine you named after the Earth goddess of Greek myth. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. And uh, Could have named after me. Didn't. That's fine. <laughs> It's looked at a billion, uh, measured the sort of position and, and distances to a billion stars in the Milky Way, and, and it's, it's really revolutionising our understanding of it, so it, that's why it's starting to go up. Did you have, when you were a child and you first started to realise, because, I mean, I suppose it's only for the last three generations, isn't it, where the enormity of the universe has started to, to be understood. I mean, you know, 1920s the, onwards. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's yeah, that's three, four generations, yeah. really, isn't it? It's not much more than that. Yeah, and... and that to me, yeah, my, my, my dad would have been born. That. And so that suddenly as it opens up, suddenly as it stops just being, well, there's some planets there and then there's just some stuff after that. And then you go, there's a lot of stuff. There's, you know, there's a galaxy. Ah, there's not just one. There's 200 billion galaxies, you know, all of those things. Did you have a moment of, because of, I remember as a kid having that sudden, that sense of what infinity might be or that sense of the length of time since the beginning of the universe and that moment of, of, of nausea, that moment of... It's not kind of fear. Mm. It's your body freezes in confusion. There's a... Ugh. Maybe not as a child, but I went through a stage maybe, I don't know, five or six years ago where I was having regular existential crises about, about that kind, of, kind of stuff. Like, if you, if you think about it too much, you know, are there other universes? And if there are other universes and there's copies of you in each one and they're all slightly different to you and different things happen to them. So there are universes where good where good things have happened to you. And if you think about it too much, you go absolutely insane. Yeah, because so I stopped thinking stop about, thinking about <laughs> that. Because <laughs> I found it pragmatically pointless. Yeah. It, it seems well, so, all, all of those diff, different kind of views. So when you, your, your latest book is about the sun. And uh, what, you're, what you want to do with this book is you, you basically say unlock the mysteries of, of the sun. So here is this, uh, you know, the, the, the reason we... Uh, exist at least in the parochial you know solar system so um what are the mystery what what when people are looking well if you are looking up the sun don't look directly at it but you know what are the things that they might be surprised to discover we still don't really know well that was the thing about the sun i can't think of many things that are so familiar to us that you know we we see literally every day unless it's cloudy um but yeah it's still so alien to us um because it is so bright and hard to to see so one of the biggest, well, I say the biggest mystery of the sun is is, is it's why its atmosphere is so hot. Um, we've known about it for nearly 100 years now. So in the core of the sun, it's about 16 million degrees. And then it gets cooler and cooler as it gets towards the surface. And then it starts to get hotter again. So imagine walking away from a campfire and starting to get cooler, as you'd expect, and then start getting hotter again. How do you know? How do you know that it gets hotter again? Um, so you can measure the... Um, temperature of parts of the sun by looking at lines in, in the sun's light. Okay. So about 200 years ago, a, a German, uh, Joseph von Fraunhofer, looked at sunlight for the first time through a prism, mm-hmm. um, and he saw dark lines. Mm-hmm. And those dark lines represent different chemical elements at different uh, in different situations. And in the 1920s and 30s, they found this line that w- was iron being burned at 3 million degrees Celsius. Right. You only get that line if iron is doing this weird thing where it's had half of its electrons stripped away and then one of those electrons 
drops down inside the atom and it gives you this line. Um, and I have just... an interstitial question. Um, my interstitial question is, how do you know that's the temperature at which iron does that? Could you ever get to that temperature? Surely not. Or have you had to extrapolate from other things that iron does at lower temperatures? So I don't know whether you can recreate that on the Earth because of the... Oh, I feel better about asking if you don't know the answer. That's excellent. Thank you. Because it's really yes. tenuous, the answer. The pressure is so low and the number of particles involved is so low. Um, but you can do the you can do the calculations to say if, if this transition occurs, at yep. what uh, wavelength would you expect the line to be? All right. And it's... I'm it's back on board. On. Well, I want to talk about something positive. We'll do good sun, bad sun. So we'll start with good sun, which is... Um, the aurora is still something. I'm hoping that I may well. Uh, I'm off on tour to um, quite kind of northern uh, Europe, up in uh, Trondheim, and, th- and then then over to to Iceland in late October. I'm told that that there's a possibility of observing the aurora then, possibly. I still don't. I hear oh, you know, cause basically it's the, the magnetosphere and some So what is going on? Where, that that incredible spectacle, that remarkable spectacle. How can you break that down for me to be able to understand that? So the, the Earth has a big magnetic field. I mean, you can kind of think about it like a the iron filing bar magnet thing you had at school with the field lines going pole to pole. Except the the night side of the Earth, it's, its magnetic field is incredibly elongated because it gets blown by the sun's uh, material into a really long tail that stretches out way behind the Earth. So if something comes in from the sun and hits our magnetic field, it can flip some of the field lines over the poles into that long tail. And the lines get forced together. And if you bring two regions of opposite polarities together, like a North Pole and a South Pole, they can snap into a brand new uh, configuration. They call that reconnection. And uh, it's a bit like an elastic band snapping. It flings particles all over the place. So particles that have been trapped in our magnetic field that have been there for ages suddenly get chucked at close to the speed of light in all directions. And, and where do they go? Well, they go down towards the poles. They follow the field lines t- to the North Pole, to the South Pole. Um, and when they collide with the ionosphere, that's where the northern lights and southern lights come from. That's so basically, it's the sun reconfiguring our magnetic field and sending particles towards the poles. That's the See, mine's, my mind still remain blown by the fact that I'd never realised that North and South Pole, that every now and again, they just swap. Well, they're reversed no, right now. And, and, and that's, that's, yeah. No, not your bit I knew. They're reversed right now. Oh, Did you nor- just casually say that? Yeah, yeah. The North Pole is, is, is over Antarctica. What? And the South Pole is over the Arctic. For heaven's sake, how long has this been true? Did everyone else know? No. Right, how long has this been true for? Roughly. 22,000 years. Really? So it flips every, it flips every, it's not like clockwork but they on the sea floor yeah. there are these stripes that they can see as the new material has kind of come up from underneath the earth stripes are a part of your life more <laughs> than you would expect yeah all right so 22,000 years ago it flipped it flipped and it's a if you look back at the previous flips in the sea floor then they're about that about that length of time tens okay. of thousands of years between flips all right so like your article every six months of of we're going to get killed by the sun yes there is also normally an article every six months that saying says flip flip the poles are going to flip because yes. they haven't yet and Quick, then when they new do, compasses orienteering's ruined when, yeah well no one quite quite knows because, in the sense of yes there, there haven't no been one. technology on the earth before when that's happened uh, or even writing i don't right. think that's right isn't it that's and even like even last writing? time then no they might not have known that it had flipped but the point is that 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 means that uh, 
It's the orientation of the stuff that arrives from the sun that's important. If there's a southward-facing storm, then that's the bad kind because it's oppositely directed to our magnetic field. If it's running from, uh, if it's flipped, right? The field lines run from the, when I say South Pole, I mean Antarctica, right? Yep. So the north runs from Antarctica to the Arctic. Okay. So the field lines are running Antarctica to Arctic. Yep, okay. If a storm arrives with field lines that's going from Arctic to Antarctic, that's when you get uh -oh. the, yeah, that's All when right. it reconfigures the magnetic field and, and, and basically breaches our defences. If the storm is facing us, is orientated the same way as our field, then we're fine. Okay. But to strip away our, our protection if it's opposite. All right. But we don't know it's opposite until about it gets 12 in. hours before it hits. Okay. And how often do these hit? We get, we get hit quite often, but do we? But it's the biggest ones we need to like seriously. When you seriously. say quite often, do you mean once an hour, once a year, once every 10 years? So the sun, when the sun's You've most active. You've got to be careful with people who deal with space because they use phrasing in a very different way from the rest of us. Like they, you'll round up to the nearest billion. Oh, easily. Yeah, yeah. I often don't do that. Well, there's a running factor, a running joke in, in space about uh, who cares about a factor of two. Yes. Mm. It's a factor of 10 that you care about, right? But, All right. Um, no, so at, at, when the sun's at its most active, it'll kick out two or three of these a day. But they're not, if you think about where the Earth is, it's far and tiny. So for us to be in that uh, firing line. Yes, statistically unlike, quite small. So we reckon about 150 years. Fun chat. On average for the worst ones. Okay. Last big one, 1859. Ooh, you enjoyed that. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's another one of these things people write about. Is, there's one with our name on it about, about now. We had a near miss in 2012. The week before the... Uh, opening ceremony of the London Olympic Games, there was a CME that this is the, this, which is what these big explosions are um, that just missed the Earth by about a week. <gasps> if it had hit, they reckon the damage would have been uh, trillions of dollars. Wow. The trouble is, when it leaves the sun, it will twist and change and move. Yes. So, so you really won't know until. But if you if you see enough of them, then you can say those that leave the sun in this way yep. with this configuration. Nine times out of ten, get to the Earth another wrong way around. Or those ones, ah, don't worry about those ones. They're fine. Yes, we're not there. You yet. wouldn't buy a lottery ticket on those odds, though. No, no okay. And so that's why we're not there yet. Yeah. And why we have these new missions. I mean, that was part of the reason of trying to write the book is that we're at a bit of a changing of the guard now in solar physics, in the sense that we have the Parker Solar Probe launched last year, um, that it's going to get inside the atmosphere of the sun. And what did it, when you were growing up? Do you remember the? What were the, the, the books and the shows and the things that are now, you know, the fact that you come in here and you can talk about space weather and you can talk about, you know, the, the incredible kind of, you know, design of these things which are going to help us understand uh, the, the nature of our universe. What, do you remember a point where you were reading something you thought from that point that was when I was hooked, that was the, that was the piece of information or that was the speaker who made me who I am? I've always been obsessed with space since I was small and I think what started me was... I had this realization that when you're a kid, you get told these stories. We have one with the Greeks. You know, can't get better than the Greek stories, but we Quite get right. we get told these stories about heroes and mythical creatures and stuff, um, and they're great. But I always had this sense that they were false. You know, that they were fiction, that they were made up. Um, and yet, there were these other stories I was being told as a kid through books and teachers and stuff that, you know, there are these planets that spin like this, and there are rings of Saturn, and there are stars that explode and all these sort of things and i remember thinking that these stories are as good as the other ones 
they're not as good. I mean, they don't have the but same. That, but, if you, but if you tell them right, they can. But that's the interesting because that's exactly what Richard Feynman well, said yeah. about what is it about humans that if you you know Jupiter as 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 a, as a great big god is fills us with awe, but thinking of it as a magnificent, enormous gas giant, somehow that then the moment things stop being in any form of, of human shape, the moment that we start to have a real problem with anthropomorphizing and things like that, anthropomorphizing, by the way, is frequently my Ray Bradbury. Oh, um, is, yeah, no problem uh, for me. The, 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 the moment you get to, to, to that point, then the story gets harder to tell. And I think that probably is a story in terms of whether it's about solar physics or whether it's about particle physics or any of those things. The moment that it's harder to kind of draw a face on it or turn it into, you know, some kind of mythical character, it seems harder for human brains to to have enough interest to go a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, I mean, that's storytelling is, you know, such an elemental form of how we communicate. And it just is true. If you can tell a story about a thing, we remember them. And if you can't, it's just much harder. There are, of course, there are people who can remember huge strings of numbers and things like that. that don't require a narrative arc to retain information. But most of us are much more likely to remember a story than a set of independent, unrelated mm. facts. But that's what you're doing, aren't you? So that's what I'm interested in. Is you you've had this thing where you know there's Cerberus and uh, the Medusa and all of those things, uh, and uh, you've gone nope. I like the shape of those planets and I like the shape of those stars. Yeah, well, it's things like that time can bend and curl and uh, there are planets where it rains diamonds. And uh, you can, I mean, there's my favourite planet is, is uh, Kepler-16b. It has two suns. In the middle of that solar system, there are two stars. So every morning you would see two sunrises and then every, every evening you'd see two sunsets. And as you walked across the, the land, if there is land, you'd have two shadows, like one from each sun and then every three weeks these two suns eclipse each other i mean that place is as good as any science fiction story for me imagine what that See, would be like really and that's a real place to me that's like that's the perfect background for my story but it's not a story to me it's not i like that oh, that's not i'm story, interested yeah, in yeah. you liking it that's the thing about this story that i like the most is oh okay why did you choose it what i so the connectedness of this story to you is the thing that seems to mm. me the draw but in its own right i'm just like oh okay two suns like in you know, an episode of Star Trek, and that's where yeah, I am. Yeah, in Star Wars, but I guess it's it's, it's kind of. It's There's a great Asimov story, isn't there? Which is about that that planet that is perpetually lit, but then goes into darkness once every thousand Ooh, years for a year, that? and it's come up before on the show. Oh, I think I, there was a, do- a similar Doctor Who episode, at all and everyone goes insane. So, that, so the, the, the historians are desperately trying to work out why it appears when they look back one. at the civilization a thousand years before it just collapsed, and then they start to realize that it seems that every thousand years, however far they've got with their civilization, it then it collapses and they have to start again. And what oh. happens is there is this period <laughs> where, as, as far as I remember, it's perpetual light. The, again, it is. It, I can't remember. You know, two suns, whatever it might be, and uh, and then too late they go. Oh, oh, yeah, the darkness. Good. And you're asking about people, actually. It was, it was Helen Sharma, I think, as a person, the first British astronaut. My dad took me to a, um, a public lecture she gave when I was seven. I think it might have been my seventh birthday. Um, and she'd come back from Mir, and she was talking about space and her time up there. And it was the first time I realised space could be a job. It wasn't just a, a place of these amazing places, but it yeah, was a... Yeah. You could have a career in this kind of stuff. And, OK, I'm not an astronaut, but I've spent time with astronauts and worked with them and... and I get to spend all day, every day, thinking, talking, writing about space. And is that when you realised it was a place that you could go to and come back from, or did you already have that? I think I already had that because I, I, I guess I'd already, 
I knew you know what an astronaut was. Yeah, me too. But I don't think but I, I hadn't thought would have about seen it as, as a, a place, sort of... as a as a place you could go to. Because it'd be like, I don't think it would have seemed any more. I don't think the idea of Neil Armstrong seemed any realer to me than the than the dark mm. side of the moon. If you see what I mean, it's like I'll never meet either of them, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. That and I think the thought that I might have heard somebody speak as a child, who had been and come back, I think that would be a different. That would have made my brain process the information differently. Yeah, it makes it realer. And I think mm. the I'm seeing the same thing again with with. Uh, school kids in Tim Peake, we haven't had a, a British astronaut flying with a British flag and you know, not being a naturalised American for since Helen. And again, it's, it's we're working up a whole new generation of kids to, well, hang on a minute, this space isn't just this remote place, it is a destination. And, and for them, it's different because they're going to go. If we do crack this space tourism thing as people are talking about, then the kids I talked to today are eight. When they're 50... I worked out what the cost would be if, if the Virgin Galactic plane tickets came down in price as competition rises at the same rate as commercial air travel. First transatlantic flight paid was the 50s. If it comes down to the same rate as Norwegian Air now where you can go to America for 100 quid, then uh, you're talking about it costing maybe 10 or 15,000 pounds to go to space for the day, mm. which I agree is expensive. But it's not a quarter of a million. No, that's true. People guess... spend that on a car, on a holiday, so, on a... So by space tourism, at, at this level, you mean the basically what Virgin told me, which is we briefly leave the atmosphere and, and then you return. But still enough, obviously, I mean, because I do think it's, it's something talked about with... Um, I did a, a show recently, had Rusty Schweikart on, who was uh, um, uh, Apollo 9, and uh, he feels that the Earthrise picture taken by Apollo 8 is probably more important than us landing on the moon. He feels that the 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 importance yeah, of that. having that, and yeah, I kind of do yeah. as well. I, I I think the longevity of that photograph, yes. that, you know, it is a magnificent a huge thing. But even I had a stupid thing yeah. the other day with the the, the moon when we we're driving down the motorway on tour, and I was just looking at the moon, and I, I started having this kind of disappointment, going, "That's as far as we've been." Wow. Yeah, you know, which I know is a it's a straight, but but you suddenly, <laughs> but that's the thing is, you go one, it was all over within three years. And uh, the economic inclination, the political inclination, etc., was 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 all gone. And certainly, those older astronauts—they're still pretty angry that we've not got to Mars by hook or by crook. Well, not the hook or crook system that ended up not being very good. But no. but the uh, but that whereas Earthrise, that I mean, I still think it's an amazing thing. I'm not saying hey, we've only been to the moon, blah blah blah. But there is something about going that ability for everyone to be able to to live on a planet and look back at what it what it yeah. appears to be. It's yeah. kind of what I was saying earlier about the eight-year-olds and, and that flipping of someone's perspective. Because we mm. just we go about our daily lives and we we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the reality of stuff. But to have that kind of perspective is is, for example, where, I go into businesses sometimes and talk to them about the way that a space perspective or a physics perspective can get you to think differently. And one one simple question is where is the sky? And obviously the sky is there, right? Like it's up. But when you think about it, it isn't. If you picture the earth and you standing on it where is the majority of the sky down it's under your feet okay it's not your sky but it's the sky most of it is down there and so that's the the sort of power of flipping things around well, that's what i don't understand why there aren't manufacturers making more erratic globes 
because the globe I is always exactly no, it is, the same thing. It's always exactly the same. And that's not, it's as if, I mean, I, I realise it probably comes from a kind of colonial perspective. Oh, there's Europe, there's... Blah, blah, blah. Actually, it doesn't matter where, you know, you, you can flip it round the other other way. Mm. There's no reason not to have it... Because that, otherwise people would realise brutally how big Africa is and how yeah, big South America exactly, is but and I'm relatively how puny we all are. Bigger market and we might shut for up saying, let's have it the other way up, which is not upside down. They're both upside a, down yeah. and they're both the right way up. <laughs> yes. I did see an internet meme years ago where someone had just flipped the globe upside down. Like the Mercator projection, but upside down. And that's just weird. Because again, you're so... It's one of those things that is so ingrained in you from such a young age. Or when you go to Japan and you see that Japan is in the middle of the map and not mm. the UK. Yes. And you realise that... How can this be? I know. Oh, Why are we not in the centre at the top? Yeah. Excuse no. me, your map's wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it's again, it's moving and seeing things from somebody else's perspective that space has. I think a fairly, it's pretty unique in that sense. Yeah. Was science fiction part of your uh, growing up as well? Did that play any part in? Not people are always shocked. Not really. Um, I used to read books as a sort of seven, eight year old. I left my sneakers in Dimension X and and that sort of stuff. Um, but the whole sort of Star Wars, Star Trek, the things people assume that I'd be mad about, I'm not. I don't mind. What were you I'm reading not. or watching instead? Um, More books about space. I read a lot of non-fiction when I was a teenager about physics and you know these concepts that you... you... Where did you go to the cinema to watch? Documentaries about space? No. But, <laughs> um, I don't know. What did I go and watch? I think my first ever 12 was Man in the Iron Mask. Okay. Um, Sorry for your loss. I know. No, but I'm... <laughs> again, you, and I'm partial to time travel. I think that's the... Okay. If I do read or watch science yep. fiction... It, I do tend to go to the cinema and watch space movies, but it's mostly because I'm, I'm going to get asked about them. You know, someone's going to come up to me after a talk and, and ask, oh, what did you think oh, of yeah, the gravity or the Martian? Oh, yeah, the sent a lot of people your way. Yeah, well, I've, yeah. I've spent the last 18 months or so, my previous books were about Mars, okay. and so I spent 18 months doing talks and stuff yeah. about Mars. And Potatoes. There's yeah. always the question about the Martian at the end. Yeah, yeah. So... I have to watch these things to kind of... Well, I presume they're the top, the top three, I imagine, Interstellar, Gravity and The Martian, aren't they? Are, are they the ones that most crop up now? Pretty much. Because Interstellar people still... Or, how to explain the ending. But I what, will never see that film. I liked it. I thought it was so a great movie. Bored. It's not for me. Oh. You've just got to know your Have you watched Solaris? No. Pfft, silly. I've anyway. got a very low tolerance for claustrophobia Trent fetches a new host. <laughs> I'm very disappointed. She's failed both the Nolan and Tarkovsky set, which is like failing the Voigtkamp test in Blade Runner. I genuinely, um, I don't understand. Christopher Nolan fell foul of my three strikes rule. It's like I've been bored three times. Oh, uh, what were your other films you were bored by him? Uh, oh, Inception I found almost literally unwatchable. Oh, okay. Um, the what is Dark Knight Rises? Is that the one yeah. I want to say? Which is just silly. And also, stop casting Tom Hardy in things where I can't see or hear him. This is a waste of his pretty face and good acting and my time. So stop it. And uh, oh, Memento, which I think is vastly overrated. I think it's a. Really oh, I really enjoyed. I think Memento it's a rather stupid film. There you go. I'm oh, just I'm really enjoy- it. I haven't watched it since it came out, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. So yeah, no, he fell foul of my three strikes rule. I just went, no, I'm not watching anymore. I've been bored enough by you, Christopher Nolan. I'm not coming back. I'm sure he feels the same way. It's fine. This is all very embarrassing. So, um, our next guest. When, you, when you were reading in, uh, our next guest host uh, is um, Bring in Mary Beard. Um, this is uh, in in terms of uh, so what in the, the teenage science books you were reading. 
because obviously we're. I mean, this this is because I I think it's still. A, I, I'm trying to read a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm just reading Jim Baggett's book about uh, the beginning, basically the beginning of the universe, and and I, and I still, having read lots of books about it, I still find it you know difficult, and and there are moments where you go, ah, oh, I've really got to pause on this, and that seems to me to be one of the problems with um not so much necessarily the writing of science, but the reading of science that people go straight into it expecting to be able to understand everything and if they don't understand everything they presume they're an idiot or science just isn't for them but to me it is a different form oh, of reading the, than almost any any a other very form frustrating thing to have yeah. to try and rebut mm. see also i just can't do maths yeah i was yeah, yeah, say yeah. exactly the same can I hate you that. not or could you try again so how do, I what, find it what so can we frustrating advise... no one would ever dream of saying i'm just illiterate yeah. in the proud way they'll tell you they can do oh, nothing I don't know. more There's than a basic counting. i know who once in a uh, in, in a room with it was me uh dave gorman and dan antipolsky went uh, i've never actually even read a book it was the wrong room for that. Anyway, so um, but all that, but the that, cardigans of comedy in one single yeah. space. <laughs> so that that to me is a, is the, the problem is not so much in the writing. The, I mean, sometimes there is a problem with the marketing of books. Every now and again, when I judged a, a science book prize once, uh, I remember that that trick where you go, oh, introduction, very good. Oh, chapter one, very interesting. Chapter three, ah, and, and it's straight away. There's no slow transition. Yeah, you slam bit. into the wall yeah. and you go, you tricksy little bastard. So. It's but I don't think that is... I, I think there's lots of great science writing out there for people like me and people who are not scientists uh, like me. And, and that's... Um, but how do we help people understand that you have to kind of... Re- I, I really do think you have to read a lot of them in a different way. Because if yeah. you're not reading them in a different way, then you might be learning absolutely nothing whatsoever. You might... Yes. I think it's, you've got to have that in mind as the author, I think. So I've, most of my time is spent imagining I'm reading what I've just written that I didn't know anything. Um, I spent a lot of time over, over the years working in a planetarium, doing thousands of planetarium shows. And and so that's really informed my writing, I think, in the sense that if you're explaining something to someone face-to-face, you can try an explanation and their face could just be blank and you know you've got it wrong. So you try again and they might, it might be a glimmer of, of that you're getting the right language. And so that's... I think as a writer, you could do a lot worse than get in front of an audience. And I guess the normal thing for writers is read books. Mm. Hone your craft by reading books. And that's one way. But I would say hone your craft by speaking in front of people because you will see that blank face. And then if you write in that way, the person at home reading it is going to have that same blank face. So I guess, yeah, lead them in gently. Don't have that cliff face like you say of... Chapter three, dive it off um, and throw in plenty of people. Because if you, the thing about The Sun for me was that I didn't realize the task I was taking on with that book. The Sun is the biggest thing for light years around, the brightest thing. And yet it's, it's almost entirely governed by invisible things. Magnetism, completely invisible. Tiny subatomic particles, you can't see them. So writing a book about things you can't see, even though you can see the big thing, was a challenge. Um, and so it's, yeah, kind of well-crafted, hopefully, analogies. and But stories of people, too. I mean, I, every physicist who's done A-level physics or more will know what the Fraunhofer lines are, which are those dark lines I was yes. telling you about earlier. You know, I'd known them for years. I knew nothing about Joseph von Fraunhofer at all until I wrote this book. Um, and it turns out he was an orphan by 11. His parents died a year apart. He then had to move 140 kilometres to um, a new town in Germany, uh, to, um, to Munich. 
imagine being 12. You lost your parents. You move 140 kilometers to a new town to take up an apprenticeship. The guy doing his apprentice, leading his apprenticeship was horrible. Um, and then his luck changed one day when the roof fell in of his factory. This is a Dickensian story. It's brilliant. I just The roof fell in, buried both him and his boss under feet of rubble. The heir to the throne of Bavaria turned up to sort of survey the rescue efforts. They were fine, by the way. They were pulled out after hours. A bit like Prince Charles turning up and you know making sure everyone's all right. Um, but the, the uh, crown prince of Bavaria was so taken by this 15-year-old at the time, he paid for him to get out of his apprenticeship. So come work with me at my castle. Screw him. Um, and by 21, he was 22, he was building the best lenses in Europe. He was the managing director of the biggest lens factory in Europe. Um, the crown prince became king and made him a knight. So he went from orphan to knight. And then he died in his 30s of tuberculosis. Oh, man, when they do the musical about this, so it's going to be amazing. It was just, <laughs> just, that was an insane story. He packed all those things into 30... I don't know how... 37, I think he might have been. Same age as... No, older than... Doesn't matter. But to squeeze all that in and to become an orphan and then a knight and then to find these lines and, you know, those kind of stories... If Your he... hip hop musical is going to take the world by storm. That's all I'm saying. It's very pro monarchy again, though, isn't it? It's all That's in fine. the end. It's all about the Prince of Bavaria, isn't it? That's fine. Um, we've run out of time, and you've done a very clever thing. Every time I've tried to push you to recommend someone else's book, knowing full well that it might mean they don't buy yours, you've said no one else's one. So very well done. <laughs> That's what, who's your favourite comedian? Someone who's dead and is not selling tickets in the yes. same town as me. <laughs> I will ask you though: is is the of all of the kind of writers of, of of science, is is there someone that you uh, think now that yeah when you when you're writing and when you're thinking about yeah the, the comprehensibility of those ideas you go now that is someone who knows. Well, so kind of trade secret. I don't read a lot of science books. I was just thinking when you were a teenager. Oh, teenager, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was Marcus Chone. Oh, that's. I think Marcus is fantastic. We've had yeah. him on there. In fact, we need to get him on again. He's, do you know Marcus at all? Mm, I think I've met him. He actually, he, 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 there's a lovely story. I mentioned Feynman before where uh, he wrote to Richard Feynman when he was, I think probably, a, might even be a schoolboy or a student, hmm. about how he was having a problem telling his mum how brilliant uh, the, uh, um, the physics was and stuff like that. And he basically sent one back going, your mum's right. There's loads of other things to get involved with. Cheer up. It's all fine. Yeah, and he's, uh, he, Marcus is one of the great, uh, I, I think we need to talk about Kelvin, which is one of his collections of it's just fantastic mm. he he has this great way of uh, i think we need to talk about kelvin in particular of placing an image in your head which is, a, is an everyday image then suddenly linking it to something in quantum behavior and then every single time you're stuck on a train and you and i both have had a lot of time on that and you see your reflection in the that. mirror you go oh he's have that chapter in marx's book and then says what it's saying about wave particle duality and he's yeah i think he's he's he brilliant. had to wave particle duality didn't he yeah he did <laughs> the uh thanks so much for coming in colin no your problem. book your book is out on the 3rd of october is that yeah. right which may well be now because well, it's quite late in september isn't it it's probably out now his book's out now go and get it and also we didn't get a chance to talk about it but you also uh astronaut selection uh tests uh which you you work with tim peak on uh, that book and uh, so that's another I, I was just flicking through that the other day in fact we, we had Helen Sharman and Tim Peake on a show talking about some of those kind of mm-hmm. ideas I, it's one of my favourite things is Helen Sharman it's like the two Yorkshireman sketch not the four Yorkshireman sketch oh you had luxury on the ISS you used to be on the Mir <laughs> and you do look at Mir and you go it's a shed <laughs> it's, a, it's a badly made shed in space. But, but, but of course that's the beautiful thing about things in space they don't need to be aerodynamic so you go it's a bit wonky it's fine yeah Natalie Haynes, thanks very much for it's joining my us. Pleasure. Um, tomorrow we're going to be back again, and we're going to be talking about the Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. <laughs> <laughs>
thank you very much for listening. Colin's book is out now. Tickets for Robin's tour and Natalie's tour actually are on sale now from their respective websites. Cosmicshambles.com for all of our events. Patreon dot com slash book shambles to support the podcast as little as one dollar a month up to uh there is no limit you can give us as much as you would like we'd be very grateful uh if you can't support us in that way that is totally fine uh spread the word on social media review and like and subscribe and all those things on apple podcasts we'll be back with a new episode next week until then have yourself a great week goodbye This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.